go to Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. We're moving directly from the prayer to the, to the scriptures today. Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 11 through 19, verses 11 through 19 today. So I'd invite you to turn there at this time, Galatians 2. Galatians is right after 2 Corinthians. So if you have a pew Bible or the Bible you brought with you or your electronic Bible, I would encourage you to bring a Bible, and I would encourage you to make your Bible personal to you. Um, And if your Bible is your phone app, that's fine. Just make it personal to you. Take notes, underline, mark it up. Take it seriously as we read the Word of God. Again, Galatians is right after 2 Corinthians, and we've been kind of marching slowly through Galatians. And so I encourage you to keep turning there. I appreciate, by the way, at this point I want to share, I appreciate Pastor Bob Cobell, uh, Pastor Dr. Bob Cobell, preaching last Sunday. I uploaded the sermon to our website, so it's up there on our website, and I was listening to it Tuesday night, and I don't know about you, but I learned a lot. I, I really did learn a lot, and I was challenged, and the Holy Spirit used that message for you and for me, so I really appreciate Pastor Bob and and also um, Blaine Rockfield in for Sunday school, and I appreciate him with that. I went to Alliance Friends Church, and it was great seeing people that I know there. And I heard this story that I thought I would share with you. Uh, you know, perspective is very important. What's our perspective on the gospel? What's our perspective on the word of God? What's our perspective on, on anything? You know, uh, I heard a story about a boy who lost a contact lens. And this was back in the day, you know, when you had these hard contact lenses, you know, that you had to scrub and clean, and it was just a big deal. I wear contacts. They're soft. They're disposable. I'm supposed to get rid of them every month. I usually go three months. I've already told my eye doctor that. I'm completely honest. Uh, Anyways, um, so this person lost a a hard contact lens, and these hard contact lenses were really expensive and you know you probably remember the days maybe some of you still wear hard contact lenses and if you drop that lens everybody needs to stand back and look for the contact lens you know uh look around for it and they're looking for the contact lens and the mom finds it and the mom finds it and the boy says mom how do you find it and she says you were looking for a contact lens i was looking for 250 (laughs) dollars I thought that helps us remember our perspective. You know, what's our perspective when we come to worship? What's our perspective when we're worshiping the Lord? What's our perspective when we come to the sermon? And I hope our perspective is how priceless the Word of God is. How priceless the Word of God is, which we read and which we study right now. You know, as we get into Galatians, and a theme in Galatians is justification by grace. And that's going to be a theme of this message. We see in this message, which I'm going to get into, uh, Paul approaches Peter because Peter was being a hypocrite. And we see the theme also in this scripture, justification by grace. Justification means we are made right with God by grace alone through faith alone. I read this. The difference between righteousness by works and righteousness by grace is illustrated by a ride on a commuter train. In other words, the difference, the difference between being made righteous right before God by works, earning it, and righteousness by grace, being gifted with our right standing with God before God, is illustrated by a ride on a commuter train. A train rumbles into the station with warning bell clanging. The doors open. The uniformed conductor steps out. And you climb on board and find your way to a seat. 
When you look around the car, you see tickets clipped on the top of occupied seats, paid for with hard-earned money. Those tickets displayed at each seat are the special concern of the conductor, who walks through the car to punch tickets and confirm that you paid for the right to take this ride. If the conductor finds you without a ticket, you will either pay on the spot or be escorted off the train at the next stop. To ride this train, what matters is the paid ticket. And this is righteousness by works. You got to pay for it. Righteousness by grace, on the other hand, right standing before God by grace, on the other hand, works in a very different way. God's train pulls into the station, warning bell clanging, the doors open and the conductor steps out. Masses of people crowd on board and find their seats. For most everyone wants to ride this train to the city where people never die. Eventually, the conductor walks through the train to see if everyone belongs on board. But on this train, the conductor is not looking for tickets clipped to the top of seats. In fact, anyone who tries to pay for the right to be on the train will be escorted promptly from the train at the very next stop. That's right. No one can earn the right to be on this train. What the conductor looks for as he walks seat by seat through the car is the penniless people he knows by name. The people who are his friends and who completely lack the means to pay. These poverty-stricken people climb on board with only one hope. They believe in the generosity of their conductor friend. This is, righteous, this is righteousness by grace. Grace means a gift. Righteousness by grace. Righteousness by the gift of God. A ride on God's train is a gift. By our standards, it's unfair. It's scandalous. But like it or not, that's heaven's way. That's heaven's way. We are made right before God as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone can boast. You can't boast. You can't brag. None of us can about our salvation. We can only boast and brag about our risen Savior. My theme today, Paul confronts Peter about hypocrisy to reaffirm salvation by grace. Paul confronts Peter about hypocrisy to reaffirm salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. Let's read Galatians 2, 11 through 19 if you're there. You're going to want to stay there too because I'm going to refer to it throughout the sermon. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, by the way. Peter is Cephas. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, verse 16 is a thematic verse, a thesis for Galatians. Verse 16. Nevertheless, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. 
But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ in a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. This passage right here, Paul confronts Peter. Let's talk about what happened for a moment. Paul confronts Peter. Consider this passage, consider the section, consider the, the, um, the general uh, context. In the previous section, Paul had been affirmed by the pillars of the Jerusalem church. In the, pre- in the previous section, the pillars, the foundational apostles in the Jerusalem church have affirmed the apostle Paul as an apostle. They affirmed Paul's calling. They affirmed Paul's ministry. And guess what? They also affirmed the gospel of grace. They also affirmed salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. That was Galatians 2, 1 to 10. These Jerusalem apostles, these James and Peter and many of the others, they affirmed who the apostle Paul is and they affirmed, more importantly, salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. Now Peter, who had been one of the pillars, is being a hypocrite. Peter is one of those pillars. Peter is that rock. Well, actually, I don't agree with that. Never mind. Peter, upon Peter's testimony, let me back up. I said that wrong. Peter gave the testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And upon that testimony, Jesus said he would build his church. Peter was oftentimes that spokesperson for the apostles. And Peter's called Cephas or Cephas in Galatians. I don't know why the apostle Paul has this code name for him in Galatians. We can ask him when we get to heaven. It's just... Uh, Something. It's Aramaic versus Greek names. It's just a different thing there. Peter means rock. Uh, Right here in this passage, Peter is acting different with different people. He's being a hypocrite. To to be a hypocrite means to put on a mask. It was a term they used for plays and, you know, that type of thing back then. And Peter is putting on a mask when he's with different people. He's being a fake. That's what we see right here. You know, we may see part of this in Acts 11, 1 through 3. In Acts 11, 1 through 3, the Jewish believers took issue with Peter for eating with Gentiles. So in Acts chapter 10, if you want a cross-reference, in Acts chapter 10, God opened the door to Peter. God showed Peter that Gentiles can be saved as well. God showed Peter that all things are made clean. Peter goes to Cornelius, this Gentile man, and shares the gospel with him. Awesome. It's revolutionary. It's different. And then in Acts 11, Peter has to testify about this before the Jerusalem church. Everything's good. He's going along with God's message. But right here we see something totally different. In this situation or conflict in Antioch with the circumcision party of Acts 11 is parallel to the situation conflict in Galatians with the teachers. In Acts 11, it takes place in Antioch with the apostles, with different people, and with the party of circumcision, which would be the, the you know, strong uh, Jewish people. And that's a parallel account here, something similar. Antioch was a major sending church during that time. Actually, in Acts chapter 11, we find out that when the church in Jerusalem was persecuted, the disciples fled. Not the original 12 disciples, but the thousands of other disciples, the new believers. They fled. And some of them go to Antioch, and somebody starts that church. It's really amazing. It's really cool. It's really neat because we don't know who started that church. 
The church in Antioch was not started by Paul. It was not started by Peter. It was not started by one of these foundational apostles. And what that goes to show is how important it, the, the, the mission, God's mission is on the laity. So this church in Antioch is started and it grows and it explodes and it becomes a major sending church. It, seem, it even seems that Antioch was Paul's home base. And this account is very important. This account is a very important account in Christian history. Because in this account, in Acts chapter 2, that we're talking about, it reaffirms salvation by grace alone, and it reaffirms that we do not have to follow the Jewish law. The whole book of Galatians is showing that. Which is, again, I have to say, why bacon is one of my favorite foods. Because it's clean, and we can eat it. In the Old Testament times, if you're Jewish, you couldn't have a ham sandwich. That's part of the Old Testament law. It's unclean. The Ebionites were a Jewish Christian heretical sect, which Islam very likely in part grew out of. And the Ebionites were a Jewish Christian uh, group that wanted to maintain adherence to the law. They wanted to maintain, you got to keep the whole law. And they used this very passage that Ebionites did, this very passage as an attack about the Apostle Paul, against the Apostle Paul. Now let's keep looking at the passage. In verse 11, Paul says that Peter was already condemned by his actions. Peter was condemned by his actions. His actions of hypocrisy, his actions of not accepting the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, have condemned him. In the early church, they regularly ate together. These were common meals. And they were celebrations of joyous fellowship. This is not only in the church, but in the world. It involved joy, fellowship, and intimacy. It involved experiencing and expressing joy and intimacy and fellowship through table fellowship. And we must understand this. These meals included the Lord's Supper. And so Peter, when he said that when he would not eat with the Gentiles, he was saying that he could not take the Lord's Supper with the Gentiles. And he is rejecting the gospel going to the Gentiles. He's rejecting them. That's an incredible insult on the whole gospel at this point. It's an incredible insult on what God had already declared to Peter. And that's why Paul confronts him. In the Jerusalem church, Jewish food laws were observed. In Antioch, food laws weren't maintained. They didn't force Jews to become Gentile. That practice implied that food laws weren't significant. And the problem that Jews had with eating with Gentiles is the assumption that Gentiles ate unclean food. What's important in this context, though, is that you can never find from the Old Testament that they couldn't eat with Gentiles. You never find from the law the idea that you could not eat with the people of unclean food. It's not in the law. However, it was assumed it was assumed that the Gentiles ate unclean food, so you could not eat with them. Now, that's from the Old Testament, though. It's from the Old Covenant. You could not go and sit with a Gentile and eat a ham sandwich. That would not be kosher. Again, I'm glad that God made all foods clean. Verse 12. Verse 12 says that men, for prior to the coming of certain men from James. Notice how it says that? It says men from James. The coming of certain men from James. This implies a special delegation. They were sent for a reason. They were concerned with a theological concern. The relationship between the covenants. Now, by the way, these may not have been really men from James. It might have been that these men were really sent from James. And James was the half-brother of Jesus who led the Jerusalem church at this time. But it quite might, have been, it might quite well have been that they were just spies trying to make an issue. They really weren't sent from James. They were just claiming they were sent from James. 
There's differences of opinion on there on that. There may have been a practical concern here too. What would it mean if this got out? What, it, what, what would it mean when word spreads that Christians and Jews are eating together? What does that mean? The circumcision party didn't only maintain circumcision, but they were called this party because they intensely wanted to maintain the law. They started with the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was a major Jewish rite during that time, during, well, during the whole law. It's in the Old Testament, of course. But here it is not a circumcision issue, but eating with Gentiles. But in this case, Paul says that they are trying to ask for circumcision through the back door. Paul goes on to say that circumcision and dietary regulations, etc., were hand in hand. There were three things that really made you a Jewish man or woman during that time. Food laws, dietary laws, and circumcision. They were the three major things. Food laws, dietary laws, and circumcision. And Peter drew back because he feared the circumcision party. He got intimidated. Peter knew the right way to behave. Peter knew that God had made all foods clean. Peter knew that that the Gentiles were accepted. And yet he got fearful. These people came and he got fearful. So Paul publicly confronts Peter. Now why did Paul publicly confront Peter? If you look at Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17, we see in that passage that if I have a problem with you... I'm to confront you individually, just me and you talking it out, battling it out. And if we do not come to a resolution, then I'm to bring two or three other people with me, and then it goes from there. It's, not, it's a private confrontation. Well, Paul may have confronted Peter privately first. It might just not be recorded. However, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, we see that public sins must be confronted publicly. And that is why at this point, I believe Paul confronted Peter publicly. This was a public sin, and so he needed a public confrontation. And then we get to verse 16. Verse 16 is that thesis, a theme verse for the letter of Galatians. Let me read it again. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law... But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be justified. If you look at this, this, this verse, verse 16, there's a literary device called a chiasm. I'm not going to explain it to you right now. You can look it up on Wikipedia later, but uh, no, don't. Wikipedia is not a trustworthy source. It would have a good article about it, by the way, though. But you can look it up later. What you need to know is in a chiasm, you see repetition. And the repetition is there to imply importance. So let me show you this. Paul says, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he repeats, we believed in Christ Jesus and are justified by faith in him. Not by works of the law, because no one is justified by the works of the law. He repeats the same idea, and the idea is to draw emphasis on the middle. And the middle section is, we are not justified by works of the law. We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. We are made righteous before God by faith in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law. Theologian Alistair McGrath outlines the following three stages of receiving what Christ did for us on the cross. These are three stages of receiving what Christ did for us on the cross. 
First, he says, I may believe that God is promising me forgiveness of sins. First stage, believe. Second, I may trust that promise. But third, unless I respond to that promise, I shall not obtain forgiveness. I have to believe, trust, respond. The first two stages of faith prepare the way for the third. Belief and trust prepares the way for the response. And then Alistair McGrath illustrates that with this true story. Consider a bottle of penicillin. Penicillin, the famous antibiotic identified by Alexander Fleming and first produced for clinical use in Great Britain. The drug was responsible for saving the lives of countless individuals who would otherwise have died from various forms of blood poisoning. Think of three stages of faith with penicillin. I may accept that the bottle exists. I believe that penicillin exists. I may trust in its ability to cure blood poisoning. I believe, I trust, but nothing will change unless I receive the drug which it contains. I must allow it to destroy the bacteria which are slowly killing me. Otherwise, I may not benefit from my faith in it. you got to respond. You have to accept. It is a third element of faith which is of vital importance in making sense of the cross. Just as faith links a bottle of penicillin to the cure of blood poisoning, so faith forges a link between the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ in ourselves. Faith unites us with the risen Christ and makes available to us everything he gained through the obedience in resurrection. We have to respond to the gospel, believe, trust, respond. And then we are justified. That means we are made right with God through faith, through grace in him. I want to take and make some applications. Key application, no compromise. We must not be hypocrites. That's an application. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't act one way with someone and another way with someone else. We must never compromise on absolute truth and never compromise on the gospel. We must not compromise because of fear. In verse 12, we see that Peter drew back. Peter got afraid, and so he compromised. This means that even if people threaten us with our job, we must not compromise the gospel. We must not, and we must be prepared as Christians in the coming years, to lose our jobs for our Christian faith. It's a hard thing to think about. The Colson Center, which is a center developed by Chuck Colson, who is now with the Lord, has said in recent days that we need a theology of losing our jobs for the, for, for the gospel. There's a teacher right now lost his job because of uh, certain faith issues in the gospel at a public school. We must not compromise. This means that even if we face removal from a club, we must not compromise the gospel. This means that even if we lose friends, we must not compromise the gospel. We must be prepared to be unpopular for the gospel. Remember, doctrine matters. And uh, compromise often happens in small ways. Get that. Compromise often happens in little ways that become bigger. There are many liberal churches that were once strong. There are many liberal churches that were once strong churches but started compromising the gospel in small ways. Remember that most of the Ivy League colleges were once strong Christian schools. That means schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They were founded as Christian schools that were strong for the gospel. But in the early 1900s, late 1800s, they started compromising theology. They started compromising beliefs. And they have fallen apart and are some of the most secular institutions this day. 
This passage deals with compromise with what the gospel is. Never compromise with what the gospel is. However, sometimes, many times, we also compromise on sin, don't we? Don't compromise on sin. That's another application. We treat gossip like it is not a sin, yet it is. It's a very dangerous sin, and that sin puts a wedge between you and God just like any other sexual type of sin or murder or any other major sin. We treat disrespect like it is not a sin, but it is a sin. To disrespect somebody is a sin just like any other. We treat cliques like they are not sinful, though they are unloving. We don't deal with our lustful ways. We neglect our envy and our affluence is sin, even though we are not prioritizing God above all things. Compromise is dangerous. Don't compromise even in the smallest ways. We must not act different around different groups. We need to read this passage, Galatians 2, through the lens of Galatians 3.28. In Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul says, There's no longer Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We need to read this passage through the lens of Revelation 7, 9 through 11. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, John is there and he has his heavenly vision and he sees many tongues and tribes and nationalities worshiping God in heaven. Many tongues and tribes and nationalities worshiping God in heaven. Prejudice and racism and these types of things have no place at all amongst Christians. We never should compromise on these things. Never, ever. It's one of the most things I respect about Billy Graham. He was going to be preaching the gospel in the South. It was the 1950s, and he saw a section roped off. It was segregated. And he went, and he just went upright himself, and he took down that rope and said, I'm not coming. It was going to be segregated. It doesn't fit with the gospel. And when any of us have those types of thoughts, we need to repent of them immediately because we have a wedge between us and our Savior because it's a sin. Based on verse 16, we must recognize, preach, and teach the proper doctrine of salvation. That we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Never add works to salvation. We cannot do that. We must recognize the law just makes us more knowledgeable of our sin. It does not save us. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 and 7, 7 through 9 shows that. I get many different articles emailed to me, and I like to read most of them. A few weeks ago, I read one about de-conversion stories. Notice I said that, de-conversion stories. These are stories of people who were Christians and de-converted. They left the faith. They, they, they left Christianity. They rejected Christianity. These oftentimes are prominent Christians, popular Christians, people who have written and things like that. And you know there's a common denominator in them. There's a common denominator. Before they leave the faith, they compromise the gospel. Before they, leave, before they leave the faith, they compromise the Bible. First, they start taking out things like the virgin birth or miracles or the resurrection. First, they start cutting parts out of the Bible saying, the Bible says this is a sin, but I don't believe it. They compromise the Bible and then eventually they leave the faith. They compromise the idea of sin. Then eventually they leave the faith. Don't compromise. It is a slippery slope. It leads to hypocrisy. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Maybe you're sitting here right now and you need to repent of something. Maybe you're sitting there right now and 
You don't know Jesus yourself as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been rejecting the Holy Spirit's prodding. Maybe you've come here for 50 years, but you're not a Christian. You've just been coming and attending. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? The Bible says we need to confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. We have to believe that Jesus is the one and only Savior. We must trust in him and commit to him. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we are saved by grace through faith alone. I thank you, Jesus. We give you praise and worship that we do not have to earn our salvation because we know that we could not earn our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. I thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross and your blood alone atones for our sins. I thank you, Jesus, that you did what we could not do. You saved us. You set us free. I thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to wait until we are dead to experience the new birth in you. Because we experience a new birth in you right now, today. We experience new life in you. The day we are saved, we are immersed, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. We give you praise and worship and glory for that. Jesus, we experience a new birth in you. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the Word of God. We have the church gathering, so we are never alone. We have the people of God, and we have the Holy Spirit. But we need your help. We need your help. Holy Spirit, help us living for you. Help us not to be hypocrites. Help us not to compromise. Help us to stay true. Help us to follow you. And if there's anyone here right now who has never committed their life to you, Holy Spirit, I ask you would convict them. And today would be the day of salvation. Jesus, I know that angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Angels rejoice over one sinner who repents because you want a relationship with us. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for people here. And we would make heaven rejoice. If you're sitting there right now and you would like to commit your life to Jesus or recommit your life to him, I encourage you to respond in a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I've sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe that you are the only way for forgiveness. That you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm committing my life to you and trusting in you. Lord, help us to live for you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.